Hello, and welcome to Innovation Matters, the sustainable innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm Anthony Schiavo. I'm a senior director at Lux, and I'm your host. I'm joined, as ever, by my two co-hosts, Mike, crashing the podcast, Holman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is the second time we're recording this introduction because Mike found a way to successfully disrupt the podcast after 20 minutes of successfully recording while just shooting the breeze, the moment we actually start doing the actual podcast, everything crashes. So, Mike, uh, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing today. I don't care. Kartik, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing all right. Yeah, um, pretty excited uh, because the Netherlands are playing the Cricket World Cup. Wow, it's my first time hearing this. Incredible yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know that the Dutch, um, like, I, I spoke to a lot of my Dutch colleagues and, and friends here, and they're like, does the Netherlands even have a cricket team? Like, what is cricket? Those are the questions you get. So, is cricket like a, a height advantage sport? Like having really tall cricketers is that is that good? It feels like it would make it harder to like defend the the sticks. You know what I mean? It's the stumps, the, the wicket, whatever right? the wicket. Yeah, and what, no, I don't think the height sport. is a big advantage. Care. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a big advantage, but uh, yeah, I mean they're they're playing well against Pakistan, who they shouldn't be playing well against. So. Uh, Exciting times for the Dutch. Dang. All right, Mike. Tell me tell me what you want to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> carefully. Carefully, I ask, okay? I'll do my best. No, I was uh, I'm very excited. Um, it's I'm always excited for uh, for Nobel Prize week. So that was that was this yeah. week. That was big. But it's I like was the pretty- New York Fashion Week of Nerds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I the the winner of the chemistry Nobel Prize, or one of the winners, Lewis Bruce, was actually somebody who was on my thesis committee, and I knew when I was at uh, when I was in graduate school. So I was very excited for for that. And um, yeah, just I think you know, very very deserving guy. He was a brilliant scientist, or he still is, of course. He, he, you know, when I knew him, um, and a really you know really you know kind and thoughtful person but also just somebody who was so not about the bullshit right like he he did he just wanted to as far as i could ever tell i didn't like know him super duper well but all just only ever wanted to like think deeply about scientific problems understand them really clearly and you know never got distracted by any of like the hype or the politics or the ego or self-promotion or all that all that stuff so and I was, you know, I always thought his, I always thought his work was deserving of a Nobel Prize. Um, what what was his work briefly? So he was first for. I mean, he's done a lot of interesting things, but what he got the Nobel Prize for was on uh, quantum dots. Mm. Um, discovery. He he basically discovered the modern semiconductor quantum dots, like at Bell Labs, with uh, Mungi Buendi, who was another one of the prize winners, and Paul Alvisados, who was probably kind of pissed off that he wasn't on the prize. Uh, <laughs> and the third winner was uh, was uh, Ek- uh, Alexei Ekimov, who was uh, a Russian scientist, who kind of like discovered the same phenomenon independently. Uh, but this is now interesting work on in, like, in computer screens. Yeah, it's your your displays. quantum. Yeah, your QLED TVs or whatever it's all like. Yeah, yeah. I have an LG. Quantum solar cells is actually probably a QLED or whatever. Yeah, but it was yeah. It always seemed like a good potential prize, and uh, but he I never saw his name on like any of like the like short lists or Betty nods or whatever that people would have for this. And I was, I was like, well, it's because he's just so not a self promoter. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so it was really it was that was kind of gratifying to to see that that it was uh, that that got recognized. 
speaking of self-promotion, we, that is to say Lux Research, had an event this week in the Twin Cities. And first of all, we completely failed to promote it on this podcast. So I'm going to take a moment <laughs> to let all listeners of this podcast know that we have another event coming up. We have multiple events coming up. We got We're doing three one more in New York. Yeah. Yes, three more. New York on the 24th. We are doing November um in we're doing November. we're doing uh let's say october 24th in new york november 7th. 7th in amsterdam and uh december 5th in tokyo so if you're listening to this podcast i'm gonna be at all three of those events uh you want to uh come out and have a good time we're gonna have some really great talks we're gonna have some great panelists we're gonna have some great networking at all three of these events they're free to register free to attend um you just have to be there and so yeah um that is our <laughs> we are actually doing the thing that this podcast was intended to do which is <laughs> promote our events <laughs> like um what what was your take on the the twin cities event how was it what stood out to you um did you have a good time did you eat any of the sort of questionable midwestern uh like local specialties <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, we went to the, we actually went out to this French restaurant and like duck confit and stuff. So it was uh, not, not necessarily what you expect going to, going to Minnesota, but um, it was a, <laughs> they do, they're doobie ducks in Minnesota. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, it was a good event. Yeah. We had about, um, you know, 50, 60 people there and a lot of good discussion. You know, we have, this is a collaboration with um, uh, our, consumer insights colleagues, right? Ujwal and his team who we had on the first episode of this, this podcast. So we talked a lot about um, the kind of how consumers feel and see about sustainability and, uh, you know, looking at sort of part of it was a really interesting talk looking at, um, you know, that kind of perpetual question of how, how do you get, consumers to actually be willing to to pay for sustainability because uh, it's something that was you know it, people you look at consumer surveys and things people always say they want stuff that's sustainable but um and and they even might say that they're willing to pay more for it but like when it when it when it comes down to it in in fact they they don't um you know and so you know usual was kind of showing how you you really need to um, um, one, you really need to be able to to show consumers that there's some uh, kind of social capital or other benefit to them that, that comes along with the sustainability, right? It's not just for the sustainability factor, but you see some benefits like, you know, part of the benefit of driving an electric car, right, is, is, is the sustainability, but it also, it, you don't have to stop at the gas stations. So there's this convenience factor to... Um, to having it as well. So triggers like that, that sort of, you know, adaptive environment, more engagement, future promise, these, these type of kind of, uh, um, triggers around like transparency, authenticity, and, and things like that are, are, are key to, to getting consumers to really buy into sustainable products. It's not kind of enough to just sort of say it's sustainable. And then, um, we talked, especially in the afternoon, about um, you know one of the other things that that came out of the consumer insights work is you know, consumers are looking at not just 
sustainability, but uh, but resiliency, or, or sort of increasingly associating um, sustainability with resilience. With you know, this is you know coming out of all of the experiences we've had with uh, you know disruptions of COVID and all, all these other New things. York being yeah. underwater. New York, New York being underwater last week, right? Yeah, that was a yeah, that, that was wild. a big one um, as well. So, um, you know, so we talked uh, in the afternoon a lot about uh, resiliency and and how things like flexible manufacturing or business model innovation can can also be ways to help to help deliver on that. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of lot of interesting discussions with. Uh, with some of our uh, clients and, and and contacts and and things there uh, around the, all of that and how to how to put some of those ideas into into practice, but it's yeah it's it's good. It's always just you know since we've been doing these these live events, it's been really great to see you know after a couple of years of not having a lot of in person stuff happening, uh, how I think eager people are to get out there and 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 meet folks in person and network and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, the, the, the networking and the discussion and just the sort of the vibe in the room has been really good for, for a lot of these forums. And I'm, I'm sure that's going to be, be true for the others too. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the others, especially getting back to Amsterdam, uh, a place I haven't been in, in many years now. I hear Amsterdam in November is beautiful. I'm really excited for that. <laughs> Rainy, cold, windy, the usual stuff. The first time I visited Amsterdam, my first Europe trip for Lux, I had a pair of sneakers. I think I maybe told the story last time on the podcast. Um, I had a pair of sneakers that got so soaked uh, between London and Amsterdam that at the end of the trip, I just threw them out. I had them in like a plastic bag, like a plastic garbage bag in my bag throughout the whole trip because I I just couldn't like, I just couldn't get them to dry out. I would like take them out during the day or like in the hotel room and like, they just never dried, and like by the end of the week, they had just sort of like a chemical reaction had taken place, and they were no longer <laughs> no longer fit for human human wearing. Um, but we do have some news, some real news this week. Um, the announcement of Bolt Threads entering a definitive business combination agreement with Golden Arrow Merger Corporation. That is a SPAC deal. Yes, a SPAC deal in the year of our Lord 2023 it is hard to imagine, uh-huh, but it is true. The deal, just to get some details out of the way, um, values bolt threads at $250 million. We're going to pre-money evaluation, I believe. We're going to come back to that. Um, expects $35 million in total financing. We're going to come back to that. Um, so... Bolt Threads is an interesting company. It's a company that we've been covering for a very long time. We've been writing about Bolt Threads at Lux since I think at least 2016, basically since they were founded. They are a spider silk company, right? Um, They started in spider silk, but they've had a very sort of tortured sort of journey to this point. Um, They partnered with Patagonia way back in the day to produce some spider silk clothing that never really, I don't think anything ever actually came of that. They launched their first product. It was a spider silk tie in 2017 or 2016 they made 50 of them um I, didn't somebody actually wear one of them at a lux at a lux executive summit at some point back in the I, day? I think we talked about wearing one of them but i don't <laughs> think we, we actually i don't think we have enough clout to to get <laughs> any of these <laughs> guys um 
they made an acquisition. They raised. They've raised a lot of money over the years. They've raised a total of three hundred and fifty million dollars uh, or so, which puts their you know two hundred fifty you know, pre money valuation it's a little bit of a yikes. I would describe it as a yikes. Um, but they, I think, pretty soon after the the Spider Silk tie, they actually acquired this like weird millennial. They acquired Best Made Goods, which is like this like millennial store online retailer that sold like axes and like heritage like decor and like basically <laughs> like extremely overpriced tchotchkes for millennials um really unclear to me as to what the deal was with that but they acquired that for some years before spinning it out um they pivoted to mycelium they did milo that was their mycelium brand i think they licensed that technology from uh, possibly from Ecovative or some other mycelium company. Um, that basically seems to have failed. Um, they put a bunch of Milo products out in the market. They did a bunch of test products. And then like it was announced fairly recently that the Milo products were all being like, the, all those product lines were ending. They were shutting down production. They weren't They weren't going to scale that any further. Um, and they have spider silk proteins, I believe, with in cosmetics. That's their... Beauty and personal care is, is the only, I think, thing that they're really uh, actually selling. So I'm super curious to see their their prospectus on this because obviously, you know, uh, an IPO, you have a much higher level of disclosure that's necessary, but you still have to disclose some stuff for a spec. So you are going to, we are going to get some level of financial disclosure from them. Um, but I don't know. This is, this is a, <laughs> the end of the zero rate interest rate era is, is really coming along, I think, pretty, pretty swimmingly here. But um, I mean, Mike, wh- wh- what do you think about this? Like, to me, th- there's a couple interesting things, but wh- what stood out to you about this, this deal? Well, I think it, it is interesting to see SPAC activity in, in 2023, right? That was something we associated with the whole kind of meme stock boom and the you know, zero interest era. But I think we're, what we're seeing here is it, it's kind of a zombie SPAC, right? Because the, the way these things work is um, the SPAC raises a bunch of money in the IPO. They try to go out and acquire a company. If they're not able to acquire a company within, I think it's usually two years, then they basically just have to give all the money back to the shareholders with interest and then fold up shop. And then, you know, uh, the the SPAC sponsor, the person who started it up, is is out all the time and money that they spent on it. And they get they get nothing, so they don't want to do that. Um, and so that's why I think you know we also saw a somewhat unusual SPAC with Andretti Acquisition Corp, as in mm-hmm. the 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 driver Michael Andretti, um, <laughs> and uh, acquiring yeah a, the a, celebrity SPAC deal, the celebrity crawling SPAC over deals. the finish yeah, line yeah. there, really <laughs> incredible stuff. I haven't crawled over it yet. Um, they announced plans to acquire Zapata, which was a formerly quantum computing, now sort of rebranded as generative AI company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the steel. Those two things friends. have a lot of overlap, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's easy to make that that jump there. <laughs> um, but these specs are, I mean, and what what I looked into this one with with bolt threads, right? So they act or the uh, Golden Arrow Merger Corporation, I think, is what it's what it's called. Um, they actually already came up on their two-year deadline and they got their shareholders to give them an extension. Um, 
but associated with that extension, the shareholders had the option to redeem their shares, and like 92% of them did. So the of the $250 million that Golden Arrow raised in their IPO, they've already had to give back to the shareholders, you know, all but about $20 million of that. Um, so they're, they're really kind of hanging on by their fingernails here and, and trying to, to do a deal, which is why I think they're... Um, they're looking to sign one with Bolt Threads, which is, as you sort of outlined there, not otherwise a super attractive looking target. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, this to me really kind of throws the utility of private market, like the private innovation market into question. Like this is one of those companies where I feel like if, you had startups who had raised over a certain amount of money and you required them to do like some sort of like public quasi public type of disclosure. I feel like we just never would have gotten to this place. Right. Like <laughs> um, the, the reality of a company who could continue to raise money, not just like, you know, I, I described the kind of tortured path they, they went through, but they raised 120 million or 150 million dollars in 2022, like early 2022. So right at the end of, right before the interest rates started rising, and I just feel like if you had been making disclosures about your business, like saying, "Yeah, like we have no revenue," or like we have this very marginal revenue, like we have all this weird financial engineering with this best made stuff, like I, I just feel like we wouldn't have gotten to this point of spending $350 million on something that doesn't really work. And I know it's like, you know, we need to spend money on things that aren't going to work as part of our overall innovation process. Um, but this is not the kind of laser focused risk oriented uh, vehicle. If you wanted to make a bet on spider silk being the future of textiles or consumer products or whatever, this is a pretty bad way to do that. Um, and, you know, just because of the the flexibility, I mean, you talk about startups pivoting and that being a good thing, but I really don't think that's good in the, <laughs> in the context of, of actually like important technologies that need to be commercialized. Like you want the technologies to either work or not work as quickly as possible. And the sort of half-life of a company like uh, Lightbolt Threads um is not actually, I think, a beneficial thing for the innovation ecosystem. I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, it's it was a reasonable, probably like in the early rounds, right? It's of the early financing rounds that they did. It's a reasonable thing to 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 try to invest in as a as a novel, potentially more sustainable material. But you know, once that that hasn't worked out, and you're trying to do these sort of increasingly exotic things to keep the company alive, I'm not sure that uh, you know. Even apart from the fact that obviously it did it didn't work out uh, very well for the whatever it was Series E investors who just invested like what eight, twelve or eighteen months ago at like a nearly nine hundred million dollar valuation. Um, it, you know, it, you would rather see some of that money going into. Uh, some more interesting new ideas as opposed to trying to kind of salvage this one that's that's you know like you outlined kind of been flailing around for a number of years by that point yeah i think going public also has its consequences right now 
you've got to do stuff and you've got to get them done in a timely timely fashion otherwise uh, you know you risk uh, running out of cash and we saw helion do this i know other companies in the nuclear space like oclo go public and with i mean with nuclear it's obviously difficult because public scrutiny you need to get things done on time and you always have overruns in nuclear um with fusion it's a completely different story so and and i think we were discussing this before the podcast recording as well that you know they don't have any technology differentiators per se so what are they trying to achieve with this pack deal is not something i'm i completely understand and i think this could backfire on them big time yeah i think you're right one of i mean there's two ways one is this exposes you to public litigation right like some amount of people are going to buy this stock presumably at the ipo i mean maybe no one will. <laughs> maybe just no one will but presumably some amount of people will and you know probably the stock is going to go down to zero because this company is presumably going to go out of business you know i, I don't think they're pu- they're profitable and i don't think they're in any position to achieve profitability anytime soon and this you know, if the stock price craters after they go and do this deal, like almost every other SPAC, they're not going to be able to raise any money, right? They're going to basically not have any opportunity to raise any more money. So this is a last ditch financing, right? And if this doesn't work out, you know, by taking that last ditch financing and putting it in the public sphere, you're exposing yourself to a lot of liability. And again, you're exposing people to damage, right? Like some person who's not that sophisticated might buy this or it could end up as a meme stock and then you know, there's a lot of opportunity for actual like economic harm here as a result of this. And I understand like <laughs> maybe some of those early investors want to get out, you know, but that's not really to me a, 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 a useful thing and B doesn't outweigh the the costs of what could potentially go wrong here. And, you know, yeah, I want to be clear. We're speculating here. So again, yeah. Yeah. And your it's- lawyers don't, don't at me. yeah i mean it's a little bit of a you know kind of last ditch effort on on both sides here right bolt with their struggles probably isn't doesn't have other good options for fundraising and you know like i said this this back i think they have until december 19th even with their extension to to close a deal and if they don't you know the sponsors get get nothing out of it so they're highly motivated to, to do a deal if it's not necessarily a great one. And I think we, we might see some more of these. I was looking it up. There mm. are currently, how many, how many SPACs would you guess are out there that, uh, since you played a guessing game with me last week, how many SPACs are, are out there, uh, right now that have not yet announced a pending merger? 250 maybe. Uh, if I'm guessing, I would say 900. Karthik is a little closer. According to Stock Market MBA, which may or may not be mm, the most reliable Only the most <laughs> <laughs> There are currently 666 SPACs that have not yet announced a pending merger. Mm, see, now that's cursed, right? That's, this is, yeah, that's that's pretty, a, that's, yeah. I'm reading into this. Yeah, spooky number. And, you know, a lot of their, I'm just scrolling through the list. There's a lot of IPO, as you would expect, right? There's a lot of IPO dates in 2011 into early 2022. So these are kind of all companies that are going to be coming up on their expiration. Uh, so we're, we're probably going to see um, a few more sort of desperation deals like this one yeah. coming on, coming it's along gonna over be the next six months time. or so. Public markets and startups don't mix that well. They really have to be in a very, very yeah. controlled. And I'm actually pro 
a public market for startups, I think in general, but it has to be very, very controlled and very, very structured. Just dumping these guys onto the NASDAQ is not the solution for really any problem as far as I'm concerned. So one of the things that this podcast is really about is the overall effectiveness of the innovation ecosystem. We have this big challenge to solve, whether it's sustainability, whether it's the energy transition, or even just the overall workings of the economy. And we put a lot of responsibility on this group of actors, right? Academics, corporates, VCs, startups to take these technologies from early stage uh, approaches to full-scale businesses. And one of the big questions is, does that work? Is that a good system? And if that system isn't working or isn't working well enough, how can it be improved? So today we have a, a really fantastic guest here to talk about all these issues. I'm delighted to be joined by Zhao Zhang. Or Zhang, I just immediately fucked up your name. No, that's actually close. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's close enough, right? So it's... Uh, it's <laughs> Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. Anyway. So we're, we're joined here by Xiao Zhang. I'm just, you know, we're going to cut out the part like, where I messed up his name the first time. Years, five years, like you still don't know my name. <laughs> know, that's why it's so embarrassing. I was like thinking about this. I was like, I don't need to clarify. I know exactly what, I, I, I know Xiao, because normally I clarify before a person comes on the podcast. But yes, Xiao is, uh, he is a principal at Mach 49. Um, and he's also a former colleague of ours, a former Luxor, if you will. So Zhao, uh, we're delighted to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing good. So, you know, uh, thanks for, for the invite. This is something that I really care about a lot. And, you know, you guys know that, right? So um, <laughs> and we can chat about this and then, you know, kind of spread the word. So, yeah. so maybe we can start with, with your work at Mach 49. Um, what do you do there? And what is Mach 49, you know, for our listeners who may not be familiar? Yeah, sounds good. So Mach 49 has a very interesting name. It's a, I think it's the, the escape speed or something like that. So which means, you know, as the name suggests, we're trying to help corporates accelerate, right? Their, their speed for growth. And that means two types of growth. There's the organic growth, there's the inorganic growth, right? So that's why we have two teams, the, the, the venture building team, you know, which is responsible for helping clients to uh, to achieve growth organically by building ventures internally. And then later, you know, you spin them out. Uh, you know, every case is, like I said before, is a little bit specific. And there's also the other side, which is uh, inorganic growth, uh, which is our team here at the venture investing team. So we help clients uh, approach, you know, uh, inorganic growth mechanisms such as CVC and, you know, mergers and acquisitions of uh, venture-backed startup companies. So that's uh, what Mark 49 does in a nutshell. Uh, our clients are cross-sector. The clients were sector agnostic. It's more about the methodology and capability building for our clients rather than a specific sector. And, uh, you know, we have offices, I think, uh, definitely in the U.S. headquarters in, in the Bay Area. And then uh, I think we have a presence in Europe and Asia as well. Uh, so um, what else? What do I do here, right? So... Principal mm -hmm. on the venture investing team. What do team. you do here? What do I do? Right? So, <laughs> uh, I'm here to talk, but what I do at Mark 49, right? So, you know, uh, we on the uh, venture investing team, we primarily help corporations, uh, you know, that either don't have a CVC function yet, 
then to, you know if that's the case, we help them build a CVC function, you know the investment charter, uh, and uh, you know assemble the team, and then after that we'll do the uh, you know do the investing with them, you know not really for them. This is the critical you know difference here. We're 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 trying to build capability by a let me help you build a team. Then once you have a team, have a fund, let's actually do investing together. We're another partner in residence for your audience. That's that, right? So, and also, uh, you know, started recently, we've been seeing lots of, uh, you know, interesting acquisition opportunities of, uh, you know, VC startup companies, right? So you can, we can talk about the reasons behind that, you know, the economy, many companies looking for an, an exit. Uh, so, and it's, we're actually seeing the demand from our clients that, hey, you guys are doing CBC design and also partnering residents on our CBC team, but we also need support for acquisition, right? One of the clients there, you know, uh, their CEO, their, their mothership CEO actually said, you know what, uh, you know, they talked to the CBC head, please, uh, you know, find opportunities for us to do acquisitions, which is not supposed to be what a CBC team does, right? There's a, a yeah. So <laughs> I, I want that, that, yeah. that's interesting, right? Because yeah. I, I wanted, there's a couple of questions I want to ask about that. First is like, uh, you've, you've already kind of touched on something which I feel like happens a lot, which is a company for either forms a CVC team and then asks them to do a lot of non-CVC stuff. And sometimes yeah. this is good. Like sometimes it works. There's there's some venture teams I work with who have like a big R&D capability. Uh, and sometimes that's really great. Like the, the CVC team is really able to accelerate startups and they have like a lot of value that they bring. And then sometimes, you know, the CVC function is being tasked to do with all this other stuff, right? And it's not good. Or alternatively, you have someone in R&D and they're like, yeah, he's like the CVC guy. So what do you think, like, does the CVC structure work? Like, or do does it, is it one of those things that works in theory, but like in practice, like has all these problems? Like, how, how do you think about how many of your clients do you go to? And you're like, yeah, this, this, this is like structured well. Or is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you know, points taken, right? I feel like, uh, uh, so there are several separate questions you're asking. There's one that's a, the CVC structure work, right? Uh, our hypothesis is, and it's been, you know, proved by a few cases. Yeah, it's working. And then, but there's always a but, right? So the reason for our venture investing team to exist here is, Many we see many you know opportunities to improve for many CBCs and Frank that's one and then two you know we see many opportunities for corporates that don't have have CBC should actually have a CBC right so those are the two so like there's CBC it's kind of an untapped power power and, and that there are people playing that but then we like to say hey for people that are playing um, some of them are doing great job and others are they need help that's number one number two here. You know, you see, you see a, a corporation uh, that it's, you know, you see there any report, oh, this year we did, uh, uh, you know, four minority investments, uh, you know, and then you do, you see them don't have a CVC team. You kind of know, okay, there's an argument, there's, I can go much deeper, but there's always a need for the, almost, always there's a need for that, right? So, so what would you say are the biggest pitfalls that you, you know, things that are good, that are, that are wrong or need to be fixed with, with CVC groups you run into? Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, so I I love our clients, right? But then there's definitely suggestions, <laughs> right? So number one biggest, uh, uh, I won't call that a pitfall, but it's it's a misalignment. It's between the mothership and also the CBC team, 
right? So we, we all know many people on many CVC teams, right? So they're, they're great investors. So let me give you one specific example about that, you know, misalignment, which is, you know, every CVC has a Monday where we call it sometimes called a North Star, right? Are you a financial targeted CVC or are you a strategic? These are actually not, you know, exclusive, right? So then it, not all the mothership people understand this point, right? And then many, uh, you know, for CVC actually, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a spectrum of different CBC structures from, you know, all the way from uh, ad hoc investment from off the balance sheet, all the way to you know, independent. And then you have a single LP from the mothership or sometimes multiple LPs. And that's kind of like more like a VC. But uh, for those that are more sort of still kind of under the corporate side, right? So people would actually like to think, you know, you've got to be a strategic focus, the CBC, which is not wrong, right? So you should actually try to find you know, mothership uh, alignments between your portfolio companies and some of the business units within the mothership, that's all great, right? Uh, but the thing here is because of that, many people, and sometimes, frankly, we see this from uh, investment community members who are actually making decisions, actually mistakenly think the strategic alignment should be applied to individual deal assessment. And that's not the right mentality. Let, let me explain what I mean. So if let's say you're looking for, you're, you're making four investments every year, and then if you actually only look for strategic alignment and use that as a, you know, as a, a sort of a, a deciding factor, you're going to miss many, many, many good deals that can give you financial returns. But the, the right way of thinking about this, that's even for strategic CC funds, you know, you should always be looking for financial performance on the portfolio level. But then for, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know, the point here is don't misunderstand the, the definition of a strategic alignment. I think that's oftentimes um, miscommunicated. Yeah, you don't want to take too narrow a view of it, right? Sort of part of the point is you want to be looking at some things that are a little bit outside your, exactly. your comfort zone. Exactly. Yeah. Here is, you know, uh, client that I work with, right? So really interesting investment could be an investment, you know, could, you know, the team, the CVC team feels strongly, this is going to be a good financial return. Right. But the mothership alignment is not quite there yet. And then decisions, no. Right. So it's many, many things like that. So the misalignment, I think, is the one of the biggest the challenges there. So I, I'm curious that you said, you know, like you should prioritize or these companies maybe fail to adequately prioritize the financial returns because that kind of cuts against what a lot of CVCs say about them. And, and frankly, also just the reality, which is that. You know, CVCs, if you're a CVC for a $10 billion business, right, it's hard to make a big dent in, in an improvement in the financials overall. So what, what's the uh, what, what's the reason for that? Is it just because everyone says they don't care about balance sheet, but actually, like, if your CVC loses money, you just get cut? Or, like, what, what happens when you, when you fail to adequately yeah. sort of prioritize uh, that performance? You know, challenge number two. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So challenge number two here is the is the, the financial. Right. So oftentimes, uh, you know, every CVC team has an investment committee. You know, oftentimes you have people that, you know, not atypical, you know, as a CVC team, you have a CFO, for example. Right. This person that's uh, managing the P&L of, uh, let's say, a $10 billion business. And then whereas you have a, you know, 25, maybe 25 is too small, $15 million fund as a CVC they don't really care that much. They're like, hey, you're not really moving the needle. You're, you know, you're just, you know, 
a small pie. The pie is too small for 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 me to put in you know in time. By the way, that's another challenge. The 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 commitment from the investment committee member. So and then in terms of uh, what is CVC thinking about financial, right? So my thinking, this is just me, is that you know you should not be calling yourself as a CVC if you're not you know pursuing financial goals. Right, so that's the very definition of venture capital. You have to have a, a return. You know, the return it doesn't have to be as aggressive as a financial VC, but then you should definitely sort of. To me, a CVC it's a blend between you know mothership alignment or whatever I call that mothership synergy and also financial return. Right, it's not that you know, you know. So, what happens if I I don't return? Right, so you can think you know. Uh, as a corporation, they give you fifty million dollars for you to invest. Assuming this is an in-house CVC, right? There's always you know other alternative asset classes they can do instead of just putting CVC, right? So the point here is, you know, number one, you got to generate some return. Number two, you got to generate some mothership alignment. You know, those two are both of them are, are needed. If you you fail to to miss one, you can argue you know you're not really functioning effectively. So how have you seen the sort of the I mean, I guess both on the financial and the alignment, uh, you know, sort of mission-oriented side, seeing this evolve over the last couple of years, right? Because obviously, you know, interest rates have gone up and SVB happened and all this other stuff. The the, the financing landscape and the venture world has shifted a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've also seen companies shifting a lot more into investments that are sustainability related that might be policy driven, you know, looking at, at, at impact of policies like the IRA and yeah. things like that. And in, in, in the U S that's, I think for a lot of our clients, and I'm sure for yours too, seen some, some shifts in focus to like, we need to, you know, kind of focus on, on this, this sort of uh, sustainable innovation, as opposed to maybe more of the digital heavy or, or whatever other things that they, they were doing before. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I feel like uh you know, I don't have enough data points to really draw a, a conclusion that's a stati- a statistically significant, right? But what I'm seeing here is really depends on the industry and also the geography as well, right? So uh, one client that I, uh, you know, I, I, I used to work with recently, right? So it's a, we're trying to refine their CBC strategy and then still talking about raising the next fund. And suddenly, you know, because of the economy, right? So some of their, their, their mothership, their core business, it's heavily impacted, right? So it's on the balance sheet. It's like, well, everything's going down. We got to cut our budgets, right? Uh, what does that mean? You know, we actually have done some research in that space because of that reason. So what are others doing, right? So what are others doing here is, it also depends. What's in the vertical, it really depends. Some of the, uh, the, the CBC teams are actually, were shut down and some of them were actually converted into some other type of uh, innovation vehicle, such as an accelerator, for example, right? So an accelerator, the capital requirement, it's much less intense and you get hands, more hands-on to really help with the, you know, the, 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 te- the startup teams, right? Whereas, a, 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 at least in the case I'm talking about here, it was a CVC team and the fund was actually, it's a huge amount of money, right? So that's one type of decision direction I'm actually seeing. The other type here is, although, you know, I'm actually seeing some one other example, right? No, you know, similar situation. Mothership is heavily impacted by the economy, but then they actually stepped up 
by getting another fund in just to focus on sustainability. So it's really hard to really tell from an, uh, from an outsider's perspective about what's really going on within the corporation. But then, so these are observations, right? But then my perspective here is I don't really see, uh, at least from the data points that I have, I don't really see, you know, the economy as a strong impact in terms of the, 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 the investment sectors. You know, that doesn't change. If, if you know anything changes, is there's more focused on sustainability and ESG, ESG related, you know, uh, companies. Very much so. Can, can you talk about that a little more? Because you, you kind of said earlier that you've got this situation where companies are are looking for exits or acquisitions. Yeah, is that a specific like funding has just dried up thing? It's not really related to the macro economy, or or what, what's going on there? What's what's driving these these acquisitions? Yeah. Uh, one, two, three. I, I know three examples, right? So three specific examples, why, which is why like, I'm personally super interested in, you know, how, advising our clients for venture acquisition, right? So uh, primarily the reason I'm seeing, I interviewed, the, the kind of interviewed, I chatted with the, the three CEOs, like, hey, what's going on? How can I help, right? That type of thing. I do that all the time. I'm like, hey, yeah, it's really hard to, uh, it's it's the, uh, the, the funding, right? So people are kind of more, uh, I guess two of those three companies that I talked to, well, first of all, one of them is a Series A company, the other one is a Series D company, and the other one is a Series B company, right? So it's kind of wow, oh, three data points across the across the spectrum. Uh, second, uh, I think two of those three companies that I talked to uh, don't have a CVC in, on their team. I mean, on the on their investment right the committee. And so, uh, I there. The three data points are not enough to form a conclusion, but here are some thinkings, right? So number one, uh, financial VCs are kind of backing out at this point in the sectors, you know, in, in the sectors that I think all of us are familiar with, right? It's not like a, you know, Facebook or, you know, other type of social media sector. It's like the it's sort of the hardcore industry sectors. It's really hard. It's becoming harder to raise, to raise money. Uh, that point is actually true. So I know many other, you know, founders are telling me the same. Uh, so that's number one. And number two here is, you know, when you are running out of runway as a company, no matter what size you are, you got to cut, you, you either pivot to a model that's more economical, right? Which is, which is never a good situation. You know, you pivot when you need to, when you, when data suggests so, but then when you pivot because of the funding dried up, it's, it's not a good situation. You're kind of forcing yourself out, right? Or you should actually cut people, which is, for the two companies that I, I talked to, it's it's actually impossible because of the, the specifics. So, and then the, all of the three companies are good companies. I know them really well, right? So now there's a situation. I, I feel very sad, right? We're ta- we're looking at three companies that are doing really well. I mean, doing really well in terms of uh, creating value. I'm not saying they are like, hey, they should go IPO. They should go, you know, that's not. But there's value in each of the companies. What what's going to happen if nobody wants to buy them? They're gonna die, right? So, but from the other side, you know, in terms of value creation, you've got a lots of corporates that could meet that value, and then now I'm telling you, hey, you should buy them. Now it's a cheap deal, right? So that's another reason. You know, it's it's sad, but it's an opportunity. Okay, I, w- I want to. That's 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 really interesting. I, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, one of the other big things that's been coming up a lot in you know our conversations with clients currently is big picture policy stuff 
we've already talked about, you know, the interest rates and the funding, and that's, in a lot of ways, that's a policy, sort of macroeconomic policy question. But there's also a lot more specific, you know, policy support for for different technologies, whether that's uh, carbon capture or hydrogen, you name it. How much is that sort of intersected with the world of of venture capital? Yeah. Um, Too much, too much, right? Too much. Yeah. uh, All right, tell me, tell me. Real is limited to a, a few specific sectors, specifically, let's say, the battery sector, right? So uh, I'm not a policy person, but what, what I do know here is there's lots of uh, policy uh, battery startup companies really piled up for funding. Uh, what I just told you about the three companies, that situation, none of the companies, the three companies in the battery space. On the, on the other side, you know, I talked to a, a CBC a, a investment director from a CBC team recently. Uh, I said, "Hey, uh, I know a bunch of uh, battery companies that are looking for funding." That's true, right? Uh, he said, no, 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 I don't want to touch them. I said, "Why don't Why don't you want to touch them? Because their valuation it's 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 incredible, right?" So basically, you know, one thing I personally don't like about the VC space is there seems to be this bubble. You know, and, you know, when everybody thinks about where policy is in favor of, a, you know, a certain thing, that certain thing will actually generate companies. And then the companies that are generated from that thing will actually have this uh, valuation that's, you know, it's a good valuation, but then I'm sure a, a not so small portion of companies that are generated from that, you know, thing, right, it's actually overvalued, right? But then I feel like investors know this, but then they still want to jump in. Because it's a, it's a return game. It's you know you wanna you wanna the FOMO. Yeah, yeah, it's a return game. Like you know, I I'm a let's say I'm a seed investor, right? So you know I want to get out before the bubble bursts, right? I know it's a bubble. I still want to do it. Why? Because I can still generate return before the bubble bursts, which is really not good for the uh, for the for the, for the ecosystem, right? So we got companies that are either you know it's overvalued. Which which means that one day, no matter like your your, your uh, unicorn doesn't really matter. Just one single day when the bubble bursts, you're gonna die, right? It's not really good for the economy. It's a waste of energy and time. So my personal opinion, it doesn't represent Mark Forty Nine. Just me. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question, Zhao. Um, you know, you work with all these companies. You also partner when you are going for these VC um, opportunities. Uh, how has greenwashing or the possible backlash from greenwashing or these claims of greenwashing affect companies when they go towards VC, even if that's the, the right valuation, the right time to invest in something? Has yeah. that uh, affected companies and made them back out of a deal? Absolutely not, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, greenwashing, right? So never seen any company or any CBC worried about that or at least that you know uh it's yeah it's to me well maybe again maybe my data points are limited but i, I don't really see that as a strong impact in fact uh, uh you know the sort of the 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 the, uh, the, the passion on, on sustainability you know trumps over everything so it's all about mm. that sometimes i think it's too much uh but i think uh uh yeah i don't i don't think i, I don't think i see a direct in, impact there all right so we've touched on a lot of different things. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, again, kind of getting back to the sort of macro level, right? This whole ecosystem, 
we've we've put a lot of of faith into it to be able to solve these these challenges right um is it good enough is it working what would you change you know just stepping outside your role at Mach 49 and and you know we talked a little bit about cvc how that's got advantages and challenges but you know whether it's academics or startups being formed or you know maybe the government funding you know is the system working well enough and how could it work better overall? Yeah, I, I love this question. So at Mark Renai, we have a question called the magic wand. If you can do a magic, have a magic wand, what would you do? Don't worry about it. What I, what I would do here is to make people don't think about themselves. Let me explain, right? So it's a, in, you know, everybody essentially is in a people business. No matter you're like a, making batteries or you're actually doing consulting or you're doing investing, right? So the, the, the fundamental issue here uh, for the subsector of the micro ecosystem we're working with large corporations is people, right? So we talk about all the misalignments. We talk about, uh, you know, and some other factors like compensation, you know, all the decision-making power, et cetera. It all comes down to people, right? So we've seen good examples of CVC doing really well. TDK Ventures is one example, right? So we can talk more about that. Uh, Reason for that fundamental reason is the the mothership support, right? The uh, it's actually you, you can actually zero in to talk about this. You know, you can say something like, "Hey, these three people from this corporation are really they're in decision making roles. They're like maybe the CEO and CXOs. They are, you know, they want to take a risk, and then they like, you know, every CEO has a tenure. Like they've been there for you know a certain amount of time. Oftentimes." They make a decision, they do an initiative, they actually double down in a CVC, they won't be able to see the return before they retire. Uh, but that's actually, the, that's the problem. But some of them are still like to, you know what, I want to leave a legacy. I think this is gonna work. We're gonna do that. Right? We need more people changing their mind toward this direction. And it's not happening, right? So it's not, it's really hard when you're actually working with a corporation, let's say do a CVC, and then your mothership the, the key decision-making power, a, a bunch of people are not thinking this way, it's frustrating. So it's the people. The people have to change. The people have to be, to be more risk-taking and, uh, and uh, leaning towards innovation, which means risk. But it's inevitable. All right. Zhao, it remains only for us to thank you for coming on and sharing your your insights with us. It was really great. We're going to have you back, I'm sure, on the podcast soon enough. But uh, yeah, everyone check out Zhao and everyone check out Mach 49. They do some really good work in this area. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.